From the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio, this is Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. Injured in Georgia? Make the right call to the law office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. Injury Insider is presented by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs. Hello and welcome to Injury Insider with Derek Hayes on Business Radio X. We are broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio in the Sinesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. This show will answer legal questions and debunk personal injury myths with insight and expertise. For nearly 25 years, Derek Hayes has exclusively represented injured parties in Georgia. Now he'd like to put that knowledge to work for you. My name is Lita Brooks, and it's my pleasure to introduce the star of our show, Derek Hayes. Good afternoon, Derek. Good afternoon. I always sounds so great when you do that intro. Well, I love thank it. you. Thank you. Thank you. But before we begin... A quick reminder that Injury Insider is brought to you by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs, and by the law office of Derek M. Hayes. Injured in Georgia? Make the right call to the law office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. I love that car crash. All right, let's get to today's show. In the last podcast, you covered a couple of topics that were specific to current cases that you are handling in your office. We talked about respondeat superior and dram shop laws. This was a really, really good show. I'm just going to put a interject here that that show is still up. You're, anyone is welcome to go to Injury Insider with Derek Hayes and, and look up the show. Uh, it's had thousands of downloads, so I know you're giving all of our listeners here a fantastic legal education uh, because those are definitely legal terms I don't think many people have ever heard or would completely understand unless they went to law school or listened to this show I'm thinking I need to charge admission then or something maybe yeah <laughs> the law school of Derek M. Hayes this is, this is what it is that's absolutely right but it made me realize how important it is to hire you if you've been injured in a car wreck or any other kind of accident it also made me think that a lot of people have missed out on opportunities to be more fairly compensated for what happened to them. I can speak to this personally. I was in a car accident and thought I could handle it myself, probably like most people out there. Why would I hire an attorney? It's going to cost me a ton of money. I don't want to sue. All the things we've covered in other shows, but it's very relevant. You hear these statements all the time. And my car was totaled, and I had an infant in the car, and I received no compensation for any bodily harm. I mean, it, you know, they raked me over the coals. Let me interject. We had not met each other yet. No, no. This was something that happened, you know, 10 years ago. And um, I would love to have helped you out back then. I, yeah. Now, now, knowing what I know, I absolutely wish that uh, I had called an attorney and, and I had called you, Derek. So that's what the purpose of this is we're here to help all the people really understand the laws and understand the legal aspect of all this i remember back in your first show you pointed out how insurance companies do not have to tell you about these kinds of things all these legal terms there's a lot of things that um why you would need to hire an attorney when you don't know about these terms it saves the insurance company a lot of money. So before we go any further, I understand that you had a call this week from someone that listened to the last show. 
Talk to me about that. Yeah, I want to talk about that because it goes to what you just said, and that is not knowing the law saves the insurance company money. And more importantly, there is no law that requires them to take you by the hand and walk you through the process and say, oh, by the way, if you do this, then we will owe you this amount of money. Or uh, don't forget to look at this policy because there's additional coverage for you that's there. So in the call I got this week, they had already settled their case on their own several years ago, which was interesting. You know, timing is everything. Unfortunately, this didn't happen back then. Uh, but they didn't think they needed an attorney because the person that hit them was arrested for DUI at the scene. And they heard from the insurance company almost immediately. And the insurance company told them that that person had policy limits of 50000 per person, 100000 per occurrence. And both the husband and wife that, that were involved in this, they had a little over $20,000 each in medical bills. So the insurance company, on their own, pretty quickly gave them the 50000 each for their claims. And they thought, well, okay, that's fine. That's all the money there is. There is no other policy out there. That's all we can tap into. But now, having heard the show, they think that the guy that uh, hit them had been to dinner before the wreck and, and wanted to know if they could do anything now. And the reason why they thought he'd been to dinner, because he had his wife in the car and another couple in the car. They were dressed kind of nicely. It was uh, around 11 o'clock or so in Buckhead, around all the restaurants there. And they, because he was arrested for DUI, may have thought that he had been served alcohol during the course of the dinner, which would have kicked in the dram shop laws we talked about last week. Unfortunately, though, it's too late now because the statute had run. And even if the statute hadn't run, they'd already signed off on a full release of the claim and closed the door. But had they had me back then, I could have looked into and definitely would have looked into the opportunity to have added more coverage to their claim through the dram shop issue. So I bet that was a hard conversation. Yeah, so I have to tell this gentleman, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but you've called me too late. Oh, because, that's it. And that's you all know, you can there's, say. There's probably something we could have done, but at this point, the statue's up. The statue, the had, statue run. had run, and it's too late. Correct. Correct. I'm disappointed for him. I know. And, and I again, really am. It, I don't know him. Um, of course, I'm not a privy to that information, right. just being the host of your show. But... Um, and we'll get to the end where if there's other uh, people listening and they have questions and concerns, um, we're going to tell everyone how to get to you directly right. because you are answering all these questions and comments and, and making all these phone calls. So that podcast was on Wednesday. I got that call Thursday morning, wow. which was really interesting. Yeah. So they heard it and almost immediately thought, well, what else can we do at this point? And the answer was unfortunately nothing. Well, hopefully someone listening, you will be able to help them. Sure. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to today's show. You told me before we started today that you want to keep going with a few more legal terms and situations that have come up in some of your recent cases. It's almost like we're getting a free legal education, right? Yeah, uh, but yes. without <laughs> reading all the reading that is required or the expense. Um, I got to interject here. Talking about all the reading... How many highlighters would you go through a week when you were in law school? Oh, dear Lord. There's no telling. Well, I did law school in two years. The typical track is three years, but I went year-round and knocked law school out in two years. I wanted to get started. And it's not uncommon to have 300 pages or so per class per day to read. Cool. So I would go from classes directly to the library and find a comfortable spot that was a little bit too cold so you couldn't fall asleep and read and highlight wow. and read and highlight and be prepared for the next class. So yeah, it's it's you're, a lot of work. You're an overachiever in that two years. All right, Derek, what is the first topic today? So today I want to start by talking about um, a rule under the evidence laws in Georgia regarding something we refer to as subsequent remedial measures. So before I start, have you ever heard that term before? No, the phrase? I've not heard of that ever. Right. So it's specifically in Georgia Code 24407. 
uh, which was enacted back in 2014. Now, I'm going to read the code section because I think it's important to get that out verbatim. And then I'm going to go back and, and kind of break that down a little bit. But the code section says, in civil proceedings, when, after an injury or harm, remedial measures are taken to make such injury or harm less likely to recur, evidence of the remedial measures shall not be admissible to prove negligence or culpable conduct, but may be admissible to prove product liability. Then it goes on to say that provisions of this code section shall not require the exclusion of evidence of remedial measures when offered for impeachment or for another purpose, including, but not limited to, proving ownership, control, or feasibility of precautionary measures if controverted. All right, so break that down for us. Yeah, it's a Take bunch of legal mumbo-jumbo. Right. Put that in layman's terms for us, yeah, please. And, and that's it. And, and it's, it's, again, it's legal mumbo-jumbo. We've talked about that before. It's, it's and all those uh, big words and phrases that you want to see or that you do see in most code sections. But basically it says, in a civil proceeding, well, a civil, civil proceeding would be a personal injury lawsuit or a personal injury claim. After an injury or harm, and that, of course, speaks to the injury specific to the person, remedial measures are taken to make such injury or harm less likely to occur, recur. So if after somebody's been hurt, they go back and change an area that was defective to keep someone from tripping and falling or something that, that could be fixed, they go back and fix it. Then it says evidence of the remedial measure, in other words, the fix, shall not be admissible, admissible to prove negligence or culpable, which means deserving blame, conduct. So they can't later on at a trial talk about, well, they fixed that after I fell. They went back and fixed that. That can't be used to prove negligence. It may be admissible to prove product liability. Um, like, for example, side saddle gas tanks. It was a big case here I in remember Georgia. that right. case very well. Uh, the Ford pickup truck that mm -hmm. had the gas tanks outside the frame of the car, uh, or the truck, rather. So provisions shall not require exclusion of evidence of remedial measures so in other words, there are exceptions to every rule, and mm -hmm. this is addressing some of those exceptions. Uh, one exception is when offered for impeachment. Now, impeachment means that someone has testified, and then later on after they've testified, or while they're, they're still testifying, you get them to admit that something they've said was inaccurate or a falsehood, or um, they lied under oath if you want to go that far with it. That would be impeaching their testimony, when then it, then it brought, brings into a negative light anything else they say or for another purpose, including but not limited to proving ownership, control, or feasibility, which references the easy fix to the, to the defect, or precautionary measure, or off precautionary measures, if controverted, which means denied. Okay, so you've broken it down. Give us a summary of this. Yeah, and when you break it down, it's still kind of mumbled and jumbled, but nonetheless, it basically says, or it basically means, that if you get hurt on someone else's premises or property, uh, by a defective product, uh, and you find out that your specific injury caused the owner of the property or the maker of that product to make changes, then those changes may not be admissible in an eventual trial to prove negligence. The changes may be introduced in other ways, but typically it's completely inadmissible to prove that the other party was at fault, basically. Are these kinds of things common in a personal injury case? Yeah, I've, I've actually had many, many of these cases uh, involving issues of, of uh, subsequent remedial measures through the years. So the best way I'm going to be able to understand this is examples. And I bet a lot of people listening are saying, okay, I get it, but let's go a little deeper. And that's it. That, that's where the law school education comes in. You, you can hear all that legal mumbo jumbo and get kind of caught up in the, the, the terminology, but to put an, exa an example in place makes it a lot easier. 
So right now I have a current case involving a parking lot and sidewalk area outside of, of a bank. I'm not going to go into too many details, but I do want to explain exactly what happened. Um, so the pavement on the sidewalk and other areas around there were dark, dirty, needed to be pressure washed so you could see it a little bit clearly. Um, but there are also some shadows in that area from trees that are next to the building that block really the clear view. Um, it makes it very difficult to see the different heights of the parking lot level, the sidewalk level, and there's an abrupt change to a, a wheelchair ramp. It makes it very difficult to see that. There's also no yellow paint on the ramp itself, which brings into issue another statute regarding ramps uh, on sidewalks in front of businesses and the requirement in many areas for yellow paint or some sometimes white paint to distinguish that ramp it itself. It has to be there. Right. So okay. someone who needs to be able to visibly see where they can get onto the sidewalk, they can spot that yellow paint and know, well, there's the ramp right there. So that was not there either. My client, who is in his late 80s, he fell there in that area where it's not painted, it's dark, needs pressure washing, there's not very good lighting, and he went headfirst into a parked vehicle there in the lot. Oh, no. Yeah, and, and he's had some pretty bad injuries as a result of that. And after the fall, which happened uh, some time ago, they've now painted the ramp bright yellow so that anyone can see it, even mm -hmm. in the shadows. Uh, they've also now, interestingly enough, added a handrail to the ramp that makes it uh, stand out even more. And actually, that handrail kind of blocks the ability to step up on the curb there. Um, none of that was in place when my client fell. So um, it's it's a perfect example of a subsequent remedial measure um, that falls under the statute we talked about. Uh, now, there are other ways that will allow me to potentially get that into evidence if we ever get to an eventual trial. But under subsequent remedial measures, it does limit those uh, opportunities. So as a plaintiff's attorney, you know, always working for the injured person, it's sometimes very frustrating to not be able to talk about those kinds of changes that were made. Um, you know, unfortunately, juries may not be able to truly understand what the area looked like or why the change was made if they can't hear about it. That makes sense. But why does the law want to keep you from talking about the changes that had to be made to make something like that safer? Yeah, you, you would think the common sense says, well, hey, we need to hear about why well, yeah. why they made these changes because that poor fellow's hurt now. Uh, and you realized, obviously, the mistake and went back and painted the curb yellow and put in a handrail. Well, the theory is that if subsequent remedial measures were completely admissible, it would deter owners of property or makers of defective products to not make changes um, that would make an area or product safer and prevent additional injuries. It, it's, in other words, if, if making a change becomes an admission in court of responsibility for someone getting hurt, then the changes wouldn't be made. Another example or other examples, I guess you could say, of, of subsequent remedial measures would be um, you know, say toys that are inherently dangerous that require changes to the design where little pieces can break off and a child can swallow a piece, get stuck in their throat. Sure. We've heard about cases yeah. like that on the news. Yeah, the magnets they had mm -hmm. at one time. I can't remember what they were called, but that was a something that, that children were swallowing because the magnets would come loose. Uh, say the redesign of a bar area in a restaurant where water tends to spill on the floor in a high traffic area that creates a slipping hazard. Uh, if they redesign or reconfigure that, it could be a subsequent remedial measure. Or another would be changing the height of a curb uh, where people often trip because it's higher or lower than it would normally be. Uh, you know, those are all examples. Yeah, well, I hope that your client is well and, and has recovered a head, head injury from, from a fall is, you know, nothing. It's very serious. Yeah, we're aggressively, right? aggressively working that one now. Okay. All right. Well, let's go to the next topic you want to discuss today. Talk to me. What is it? All right. This one's called something or something we call negligence per se. Have you ever heard that phrase? I have not. 
Okay, well, let's define it first. So negligence is simply the failure to take proper care in doing something. Everybody's heard the word negligence. The other part, per se, literally means itself or by itself. Now, when you use those together in the law, negligence per se means negligence as a matter of law. So kind of think about it this way. If someone is driving a car and they break the rules of the road and they cause a wreck, then that can be considered negligence per se. An example of a rule, rules of the road would be passing in a no-passing zone, following too closely, improper turns, DUI. So all those are issues uh, or circumstances where someone would be committing uh, an unexcused, unexcused violation of the law. Um, they're all reasonable standards that must be in place for people to be able to operate cars on the road, or otherwise we'd be bumping into each other all the time. It makes perfect sense. So here's the catch, though, and, and I, this is why I wanted to talk about this one. So proving someone is negligent per se does not automatically mean that they are liable in an injury claim, which is kind of an inter interesting twist that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, and it's a tremendous misconception a lot of people have when they call. All right, so let me interject here. So if someone turns in front of me and I hit them because I couldn't stop in time, is that negligence per se? Well, yeah, that's negligence per se, even if they didn't get a ticket for the improper, uh, for the improper turn. So the, the investigating officer, they have a judgment call. Sometimes they'll ticket, sometimes they won't. But even if they don't ticket, that simple act of an improper turn is negligence per se. Wouldn't it also mean that they are now 100% responsible for my injuries and my medical bills? You would think. You would think that, but unfortunately, no. So negligence per se is definitely there if they pulled in front of you improperly, but the at-fault driver can always introduce other factors into evidence that may mean that they will not be held liable by a jury for your injuries. Um, excusable conduct, or uh, they may claim that you had pre-existing injuries and that their impact with you didn't cause the injury, or other factors. There are other things they could do, but it's ultimately the plaintiff's responsibility, in other words, the injured person's responsibility, to prove that that specific negligent act, that improper turn, was the proximate cause, or in other words, the cause of the injuries themselves. So on a side note, the fact that a defendant was ticketed for something when the wreck occurred isn't automatically admissible in trial. So people will say to me, clients will say to me, well, the guy got a ticket or, uh, yeah, the investigating officer, they cited the other driver. They didn't cite me for anything. Can't we talk about that? The answer is no, not necessarily. Now, if they plead guilty, which is considered to be a judicial admission of guilt, then yes, you can admit into the personal injury claim the fact that they not only were cited for the wreck, the improper turn, but they also pled guilty to it. But if they were found guilty, after pleading not guilty or potentially pleading no low contendere, which means no contest, mm -hmm. then you can't introduce the ticket or the finding of guilt. So kind of on a side note, another side note, the, um, the burden of proof in a traffic ticket is different than the burden of proof in a personal injury claim. You're talking criminal uh, as opposed to civil. I'm not going to go down that path because that's a whole other conversation. But simply being found guilty for a ticket where you pled not guilty is not admissible, whereas if the person pled guilty, it is admissible. Yeah, but it's really interesting. So you got to hold that for another show. Yeah, I will. So I will. That's a good one. Yeah, it is. Can, I just we find can it talk fascinating. For a long time about I know, that. I know, and it's very technical. And there's all these things I would have no idea. And um, again, just reiterates again and again. You know, we're not doing the show to pitch why everyone needs an attorney, but it is phenomenal information. And to me, just being a layperson, um, I'm not an attorney. Uh, it, it again, it just keeps driving that point home, you know, and, and you're here. I mean, this is this is 100 percent why you're doing this. 
Yeah, and right? let, let me give you another quick example. This is one from years ago that I had that kind of goes right down the, the same path as the other example. So I had a client who um, they came to an intersection and they were getting ready to turn and the speed limit on the roadway was 25 miles per hour. They travel it every day. They know the area, very familiar with the area. They got to the stop sign. They looked and saw a car coming from their left and they had plenty of time to turn based on where that car was going 25 miles per hour, right? So they turned right. Well, the car was not going 25. He was probably going around 75 or 80. And so very quickly he was on them and a wreck occurred. And this was a prior client that called me. I, I didn't represent them. There were some other issues in the case. But ultimately, I explained to them that in a situation like that, you, know, you may have been cited for an improper turn or failing to yield the right of way while turning. But what really needed to, be, to come to light was the fact that the other vehicle was speeding. And there were witnesses that were there because it was a school zone. There was someone who was um, a, a uh, what do you call it, a, a attendant, the, the school attendant. Like a crossing guard? Yeah, crossing guard. Thank yeah. you. The crossing guard, who was a police officer who saw that car speeding that came uh, forward and, and, you know, of course, testified as to what they saw. So just because my former client got a ticket for improper turn, uh, did not automatically mean they would have been liable for any injuries caused in that wreck because the other person was speeding. There was enough testimony and evidence to prove that. Well, I'm grateful for them that they called you in time. Yeah. You yeah. know, as opposed to the other gentleman that called last week and it was too late. Exactly. So, right, right. yeah, another uh, point to drive home. Just make sure you call Derek in time. All right, Derek, give us one more example of a legal term that most people wouldn't know about that comes up in personal injury claims. Yeah, we talked about premises liability or our li premises liability means injuries caused on someone else's property. We talked about that with the bank and the parking lot uh, earlier, but this is a little bit different. This is a premises liability issue involving kids. Um, it's something we call under the law an attractive, the attractive nuisance doctrine. It's uh, specifically an OCGA, Official Code of Georgia Annotated, 5133C. And again, it's called Attractive Nuisance Doctrine. All right, let's dig in. Tell us what that means. All right, did you know about this one? No, not at all. all right. Yeah, this is one of those that's kind of um, obscure, but it does come into play. In fact, I've had these cases before. So this one is very important. You know, in the summertime, you think about pools uh, in neighborhoods or somebody's backyard. Basically, as I said before, it only applies to children. The age is relevant, and we'll talk more about that later. But children trespassers or child trespassers, they do not have the ability to understand potential dangers like adults do. They tend to look at certain things with that uh, we call childlike curiosity. We've all heard that. Um, some kids just won't explore anything and everything. They might wander into, uh, say, a dangerous situation because it's attractive to them. Things like a pool, a trampoline, an abandoned car, we see a lot of those, an old refrigerator with the door still in place, uh, mounds of dirt, construction sites, uh, heavy machinery, animals that are not restrained properly, power stations, train yards, or even farm equipment. Now, there are others, but those are just some of the examples I, I came up with in writing this today. Um, the owner of the property must take reasonable action to eliminate the attractive nature of the nuisance or make it inaccessible to children when fencing or other measures with fencing. So Georgia's specific law on attractive nuisance is still rather vague and it can be interpreted many, many different ways depending on the individual facts of the case. Okay, I think I know what you're going to say here, but let me ask the question, why is this important in a personal injury case? All right, let's take for another example. So if you have a child, a young child, and they get hurt in someone else's backyard, say for example, their swimming pool, 
and the swimming pool under code sections, different code sections, is required to have a certain kind of fencing, a certain height, a certain design. And that fence is designed or not the proper height, designed improperly or not the proper height, or the gate was left open, or the gate itself is broken and the homeowner knows about it, they don't do anything to fix it. Well, that pool, swimming pool, is an attractive nuisance. So if the child goes in the backyard and falls in, gets injured, or unfortunately drowns, the homeowner's insurance policy could be on the hook under the doctrine of attractive nuisance. Okay, so go a little bit deeper here. Talk to me about the key elements of this. Yeah, well, the key elements specifically for the attractive nuisance doctrine, number one, there is an existing condition or object that is dangerous. And I gave some examples. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the ones that, that is, again, kind of odd, but it happens an old refrigerator, old freezer in the backyard or somebody's side yard. You see houses that, unfortunately, things like that can collect in their yard. Well, if a kid climbs in there and thinks it's funny to hide, playing hide-and-seek with their buddies, and that door closes, well, most older refrigerators or freezers don't have an emergency exit tab inside that door. So if that door shuts and nobody comes behind that kid to open the door, the kid cannot open it from the inside. So you can imagine what's Mm going to happen there. Um, so it has to be an existing condition or object that is dangerous. The second element, uh, the hazardous condition or object is attractive or interesting to a kid. Now, that's kind of the vague part. It's going to come down to the individual kid, not only the, the kid, but also their age. What is considered to be um, an object that's attractive or interesting to that specific kid. Now, this is the next element. The kid, again, based on their age, is incapable of realizing the danger. Now, in, under Georgia law, until someone turns the age of 18, they're still considered to be a child, a kid. Obviously, if you have a 16 or 17-year-old kid, they should understand or know at least a little bit more about dangers than a two or three or four-year-old, mm-hmm, sometimes even older than that. The next element, the condition or object is in an area where the owner knows or should know that kids will be. Again, you think about a, a trail from one neighborhood to the next, and the house is right next door to that trail. and you got a whole bunch of debris, old cars, old refrigerators, whatever else, old trampoline in that backyard. You know, you know kids are going to be going through there. You see them. Yeah, you're where I said I f- felt like you were going to go with this, just thinking of the examples of if your neighbor has a play set Absolutely. or a right. trampoline and yet has a dog that bites. Yeah. So, you and know, you're home, I'm mom, my kids are just moving around the house, playing outside, and all of a sudden they go over there to swing and, you know, and let's say John Doe lets the dog out the back. I mean, it just things like that that right, right. could happen. And let's say that swing set itself is old and, and defective because their kids are now older mm-hmm. and it's not been used in years. The the uh, wood is rotted. The, the chains are rusted. And your kid, uh, again, because a gate's left open and it's an attractive nuisance, gets in there and falls or the swing set collapses on them, something really bad, well, that's going to open the door to their homeowner's insurance policy being responsible under the doctrine of attractive nuisance. Now, the final element is that the owner did absolutely nothing or not enough to take reasonable precautions to keep this attractive nuisance from bringing kids around. It's fascinating. I just, it's very interesting to me, uh, the whole thing, every topic that we've covered today. But it makes me think about it in a different light. My mind is just go, thinking of all these different scenarios when you talk about this as a homeowner. But I got to say, we probably don't think about it enough. I know that there's laws and codes and that with the pool, but like you, trails and trampolines. And I mean, there's a million different things that could fall under this category. So I appreciate you bringing it to light. Well, yeah. And you and I have been around now for quite some time together. And 
you know, I tend to see things through attorney's eyes all the time, all the time. And so I'll look at things a little differently than others do because of these issues. You know, we talked about Dram Shop last week. We talked about uh, respondeat superior. Today we've talked about subsequent remedial measures, negligence per se. Uh, and then finally, of course, the, the attractive nuisance doctrine. So all these topics are areas that must be explored um, by the attorney following any kind of personal injury claim. You know, I've been doing this for almost 25 years now, and I can't count how many times I've been able to add or put substantially more money in my client's pocket by simply doing the work. Um, you know, these are many times things that are ignored by, ignored by other attorneys or other firms that they just don't do the necessary time or take the necessary time to talk to their clients, more, learn more about what happened. Uh, they just simply look at a police report, and that's it. That's all they, they are concerned about. And, you know, it can make the difference between settling a catastrophic injury claim for the statutory minimum limits a drunk driver might have of 25000 or being able to tap into millions of dollars in coverage from a major business. So once someone signs off on a full release of their claim, like the guy that called me on Thursday of last week, well, you can't go back and undo that. Uh, so it's important now, early on, to look at all other possibilities for additional recovery. So I encourage you, call me. Let's talk about your potential claim. Let's see what else might be out there for you. I'll be happy to answer any questions. And obviously, if I can help, I'll be happy to help you out. Now, um, I, I know that, uh, um, again, we've, we've got the website, and I want to talk about that. Um, I want to discuss all the ways to reach out to me and, and, and um, you know, submit your questions or anything else. So you can call me at 404-777-HURT. 678-225-0970 is my other number. The website is Derek M. Hayes. That's D-E-R-E-K. The letter M is in Matthew. Hayes is H-A-Y-S dot com. I also have Instagram and Facebook, the law office of Derek M. Hayes. And as I said, you could submit your questions regarding a future show or a question regarding a potential claim. Now, I'm the one that responds. So feel free to ask anything. And if I can't answer the uh, the question with an email and response, I will. I'll also be happy to call you and discuss it even further. Okay, so we know you're the legal expert here, and I'm the host, so I feel like you just took my job from me. I was going to set you up for all that, but I appreciate you telling <laughs> all of our listeners how they can reach you, and keep these questions coming. Um, as the host of this show, this is my job to take these questions and read them and you know keep this going. Um, this, is, this is what you guys want to hear. And Derek, thank you for your knowledge. And these terms, they seem scary they seem we've never heard of this kind of stuff the majority we, we haven't gone to law school but when you break them down it's really interesting it's really important and that's just what i love about this show so thank you for your time thank you for your expertise and thank you for all the listeners and and again keep this coming uh let's uh let's close the show okay that works for me all right so you can always give the website again and the phone numbers again if you want to Oh, all right. The phone number. You have a great <laughs> law go. firm phone number. I love it. It's 404-777-HURT, right? Doesn't that just scream? You got to remember that. Sounds much that? better when you say it than, oh, than when I say it. Oh, thanks. Website, www.derekmhayes.com. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on Injury Insider with Derek Hayes, presented by Status Home Design and the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. Don't forget that you can enjoy any of our episodes by visiting Business Radio X, selecting the Gwinnett Studio, then clicking on Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. This program is also available on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, for Derek Hayes, I'm Lita Brooks, and you've been listening to Injury Insider on Business Radio X.